I'm turning today to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 15, and verse 42. The Gospel of Mark, chapter 15, verse 42. And now, when the even was come, because it was the preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, an honourable counsellor, which also waited for the kingdom of God, came and went in boldly unto Pilate and craved the body of Jesus. Our subject is, while Christ lay dead after his crucifixion. And it's a passage, these next few verses, in Mark's Gospel, chapter 6, 15, which uh, always produces questions. Where was Christ? Once he yielded up the Holy Spirit and uh, his spirit to God. Where was he? Uh, various other questions arise. Uh, did he descend into hell? As the Apostles' Creed seems to suggest. Is that literally so? There is a teaching that there are two places for the dead short of the true eternal heavens where God the Father dwells. Two departments of Sheol, if you like, the Hebrew word for the place of the dead. One where the lost go and the other where the souls of believers go once they've left their bodies at death. Is that so? Is there something which is not quite heaven, not quite there, commonly taught, even among Bible believers, that there's a paradise of Christ, but in a mysterious way it's not quite heaven until his return? Questions concerning that are often asked. And then the simpler practical question, what provision was made for the body of Christ at his death? There appears to have been, visibly, humanly, no provision, except that anyone executed under Roman law by a criminal, like, as a criminal would go to a, a criminal's plot. And there was such a plot well outside the city of Jerusalem for the malefactors, for the felons. There was a place where they were ignominiously buried. And indeed, those who were crucified on a cross were usually, as you probably know, left, nailed, fixed to those crosses until their bodies decomposed. It was supposed to be a tremendous humiliation for them. And that was the arrangement. That was what happened. What was arranged for Christ? Was there any alternative? The disciples had fled. They'd gone. Perhaps some were at the very fringe of the crowd, like the women. Perhaps, we don't know, but some of them had come back to look. Only one was near the foot of the cross, and that was John. And before Christ had been on the cross for three hours, because after three hours, that intense and profound 
Darkness came, that miracle of God, where there was no light at all, not even the faintest ambient light, a token of judgment which terrified everyone and silenced the mocking, screaming crowd. And everyone stood stock still in fear at second part of Calvary for three hours. And it was also a token of the fact that Christ died in great depths of agony, something which could not now be mocked and gazed upon, something so profound as he suffered in his holy soul, eternal separation from the Father, and all the weight of the punishment of sin, which was due to be borne by us throughout eternity, that couldn't be seen. But before that took place, Christ had urged John to take his mother home, and he'd passed the care of his mother Mary to John, the disciple whom he loved most of all. And he'd taken her, Well, evidently, John returned to the cross of Calvary, just in time, possibly, to see the soldier pierce the side of Christ and the flowing of the blood and water. And John was an eyewitness of that. He says so in his gospel. But he'd been away for some time, taking Mary, the mother of Jesus, to his home. So who would provide for the burial of Christ if he was not to be left to corrupt on the cross in the normal way and then bundled off to a criminal's grave well outside the town? God had his provision. And God always has his provision for his people. And we read about it here in verse 42. Now when the even was come, in our reckoning of time, it's three o'clock in the afternoon. When the even was come, that's when the Jewish evening was said to begin. It ran for a long time. The evening hours started about three in the afternoon and deepened after Six hours. When the even was come, because it was the preparation and the explanation, that is the day before the Sabbath, well, the Sabbath would begin at six o'clock that night, and Christ died at three o'clock. If anything was to be done decently, to bury the body quickly, which was what would be done normally to people who were not dying on a cross, Well, it had to be arranged. How was it going to be arranged? Who was going to do it? There was no provision in sight. Verse 43, Joseph of Arimathea. There was somebody there. Someone prepared by God and provided by him. (laughs) Joseph Hall, one of the Puritans, used to say, there was a Joseph for the Jews in Egypt, and there was a Joseph for Christ on Calvary. God always has his provision. Joseph of Arimathea, an honourable counsellor. Well, 
What that means, you can't be certain. Clearly, he was a member of the Sanhedrin Council of the Jews, the 70. But more, an honorable counselor suggests that Joseph of Arimathea was one of the three or four people who would have sat as special advisors and counselors to the Roman procurator Pontius Pilate. An honorable counselor, very high and lifted up, a counselor to Pilate when called upon. An honorable counselor. I think possibly that's the case which also waited for the kingdom of God. He was a believer in the, under the old Jewish order. He believed the prophecies. He believed Messiah would come. He believed there would be a great deliverer for Jewish people. Possibly he was corrupted with the belief of the day and misled by the clergy, though he was probably a priest himself to occupy such high positions. I imagine he would have been a priest. The old writers all thought so, though it's not expressed so much today. And he was misled, like the others, into thinking that the Messiah would be a political deliverer who would deliver the land from Roman authority and so on. But he was a believer in the Messiah coming and he believed in Christ. The uh, other Gospels say he was a disciple. Luke says so, a disciple of Christ. Here he believed in the coming kingdom, that Messiah would come. And he believed, no doubt, that when Messiah came, somehow there would be something done which would take away the guilt of sin. We explain so often that through the Old Testament, they had the prophecies, they had the sacrifices. They were symbolic, token sacrifices only. They said there is a time coming when there'll be a mighty act or sacrifice that will purge away and atone for the sin of all who belong to God. And the Jews of old were to trust that they would be forgiven their sin on account of what would one day be achieved by Messiah when he came. Why in the Old Testament, as you know, at some points, such as Isaiah 53, it's even made clear that it would, the Messiah would accomplish this by an atoning death. Easy for us to understand that with hindsight, but they didn't seem to understand it at the time. But nevertheless, people like Joseph of Arimathea believed there would come a great taking away of sin act, something which opened the door, the access to Almighty God. And before it happened, people trusted in the mercy of Christ that would one day be achieved. Now it's happened, we see we have daylight and we trust in it for salvation and nothing else. But Joseph of Arimathea came, verse 43, and went in boldly. If you were counselor to Pilate, he would have this access. It would account for it. But he went in boldly 
not so much because he was afraid of Pilate, but that might have been a part of it, that he would be thrown out, but because what he was about to do would certainly lose him his honour and his position in society. We read in the Gospels that the acts of the chief priests and the scribes and the Pharisees was to throw out of the temple and exclude from the synagogues all who followed Christ. And that would include members of the Sanhedrin Council. He'd already put himself in a bad light because when the Sanhedrin Council or the members of it that were in Jerusalem voted together at the final trial of Christ to have Christ executed, we read that Joseph of Arimathea withstood that. He did not support that. He resisted that and abstained from that. And that would have immediately marked him out. What's the matter with him? Burying the body of Christ, this to him, would have lost him his honour and his position. All the bigotry of the times and the hatred of Christ that was true of the chief priests and most of the scribes and the Pharisees would have fallen upon him. So it's not surprising we read, he went in boldly unto Pilate, not only on account of Pilate, but the results of what he was about to do, and craved or asked the body of Jesus. This is most unusual. This had probably never happened before, that an honourable Sanhedrin counsellor had asked for the body of a criminal. But verse 44, Pilate marvelled if he were already dead because, of course, Christ, having suffered, had voluntarily yielded up his spirit to the Father. He said in the Gospel of John that no man takes his life from him, he surrenders it of himself, and that's what he'd done. So he didn't linger on in life after the suffering was complete. And so the centurion was called for and asked, and he confirmed his death. And Joseph took the body and arranged its burial in his own tomb, as you know. He was noble, he was rich. There was a section of rock near there where some of the rich had hewn out tombs for themselves, the honourable ones, the counsellors, as it were. And one of those great tombs with a large stone was earmarked for Joseph himself. And he realised that he was the man. He was the provided one. He would bury the Lord. Amazing how Isaiah gets this in his prophecy in Isaiah chapter 53, uh, he, in verse 9, in great detail, he tells us that Christ was associated with criminals in his death and also with the rich in his death, and both are true. He died between criminals 
on a cross as a condemned man under Rome, humiliated and dishonored, but he was taken by a rich man and put into an honorable tomb. And the prophecy of Isaiah is precisely brought to pass and carried out. But let's talk first of all about Joseph a little. We read elsewhere that while he was a disciple of Christ, he was a secret disciple for fear of the Jews. He was afraid of losing his position. He was afraid of all the anger and hostility and the vilification he would receive if he declared himself a disciple of Christ. So I think it means that he listened to Christ whenever he preached in the temple. Perhaps wherever he preached, in any part of Jerusalem, he had listened to him when he visited, in the last days especially in the temple. He wasn't on the road with the other disciples. He wasn't a committed follower. But he was there. He would have witnessed some of the miracles. He would have heard the teaching of Christ and he believed in him. He looked for the kingdom. And in the context in which Mark says that here, somebody looking for the kingdom, it means more than he expected Messiah. He believed Christ was Messiah. It's in this context. He believed Christ was the one who would come. He believed he was the Son of God. He believed somehow he would do the great work of removing guilt, though I think he probably didn't understand quite how it would be done. He believed these things. He'd heard Christ condemn his own party, his own establishment, the chief priests and the scribes and the Pharisees, He'd undoubtedly heard the parable of the wicked husbandman, that judgment was coming. If he hadn't been present when Christ taught the disciples of his coming again and how the temple would be destroyed and not one stone standing upon another and what would happen in the ensuing centuries and at the return of Christ, he would have heard all about it. He would have heard the teaching of Christ on these matters and what he had said by report, if not been present. And as I've said, he'd have seen the miraculous healings or those of them in Jerusalem. He probably was in the temple when Christ was saying he would give his life a ransom for many and he would depart and return. And he pondered these things but he'd certainly been present during the trials of Christ and he knew the plots of his peers and his companions and his associates and he burned within him, there's no doubt, at the injustice and the wickedness of his own peers, compatriots and he dissented from their decision to send Christ for sentence to Pilate But it was Calvary, I believe, that broke Joseph of Arimathea. Is he like some of us? 
He believed, but not enough to commit his life. He believed in Christ, but not enough to stand for him. He was rich, but he hadn't yet given anything to the service of Christ and the service of the gospel. He was moved in his heart and he had faith in Christ, but the scope of his faith was not very great. Like Peter, when he walked on the water and he started out to walk to the Lord. This is the Lord of glory, the Son of God. I can go to him. But his faith didn't have the scope. And when he saw the billows, it failed. And he began to sink. And Nicodemus was like that. He had faith, but it was limited in scope. Is your faith like that? You've come to believe in Christ and you shed blood. You've even repented of your sin and you've yielded your life to him. But you don't believe that he can support you if you yield yourself fully to him. You're not one of those who would come forward and serve him. You read the Bible every day and you have faith in Christ but not enough to teach a class, not enough to visit the community, not enough to witness and suffer the reactions, not enough to be wholly committed and in his service. That was the situation with Joseph of Arimathea. He hadn't thought of giving up his position. He hadn't a thought of following Christ on the road. He hadn't thought of any of that. But when he saw him suffering and dying in agony, and then suddenly the three hours of darkness comes down, and he believes more and more, even if he doesn't fully understand, this is my Messiah, this is my God and my Lord. And he knew the prophecy of Isaiah, that he would make his grave with a rich man in his death, he would be numbered with the transgressors. And he looked at that cross when the light returned and he said, he is numbered with the criminals. And I am the rich man who will provide his grave. And I've had it prepared and fashioned for me in my death in honour on the hillside where everyone will see it with a fine inscription. And he said, I am the one provided by God to provide the honourable grave and I must go to Pilate and I must sacrifice my position and I must stand ready for the consequences and my humiliation at the hands of my peers. And he did it, yielded himself Holy to Christ. The incidental circumstances around the cross of Christ give us miracle after miracle. The miracle of the salvation of the dying thief. Today shalt thou be with me in paradise.
the miracle of the work of God in the heart of Joseph of Arimathea that brought him from a sleepy believer, a genuine, sincere, righteously living believer in Christ to a real disciple given to him and living to him. Miracle after miracle, examples of the saving, sanctifying, furthering work of Christ in lives took place almost as incidentals around the cross of Calvary. So let Joseph of Arimathea speak to our hearts. Shortly we'll be coming, if you're a believer, to the Lord's Supper when we remember him. Christ is suffering a death on Calvary where we thank him and praise him together where we consider this sole foundation on which we all stand, the death of Christ and his dying love. And when we yield ourselves afresh, will you yield yourself fully, even at the Lord's table, secretly in your heart, give yourself wholly to him, your body, your service, your strength, your years, like Joseph of Arimathea, he saw his calling and his responsibility when he was at the foot of Calvary. Well, friends, I go on to the questions. And I come down to verse 45. When he knew it of the centurion, Pilate, that is, he gave the body to Joseph and he bought fine linen and took him down and so on. And I'd like to turn over just for a moment to Matthew 27 where we're given a little more information. And in Matthew 27 verse 62, now the next day that followed the day of the preparation, the chief priests and Pharisees came together unto Pilate saying, Sirs, we remember that that deceiver said while he was yet alive, after three days I will rise again. Command therefore that the sepulchre be made sure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away and say unto the people, He has risen from the dead. So the last error shall be worse than the first. Pilate said unto them, Ye have a watch, go your way. Make it as sure as ye can. So they went and made the sepulchre sure, sealing the stone and setting a watch. Well, we read that Joseph of Arimathea was accompanied by Nicodemus, who had had that discussion with Christ right at the beginning of the Gospel of John, and he had become a disciple of Christ and become converted to him with Nicodemus and with some of the women anointed the body of Christ. We won't go so far as to say embalmed the body of Christ, but they anointed him. Why did they anoint him? Spices, costly, costly spices. 
some bought by the women, most supplied by Joseph. And the linen shroud, long linen shroud, before the body was wrapped in it, between each wrapping were laid the ointments, the spices, and then the next wrapping, and more ointments and spices, not the embalming of the body, but the anointing with perfume of the shroud that was wrapped around it. Why? Because they expected that the body of Christ would decompose, that it would lie in the tomb, and after some three days, four days, five days, naturally it would decompose. And those rich spices with their aroma would cover the decomposition. That was the idea. They didn't understand the prophecy of Psalm 16 given to David that God would not let the body of his Messiah, his anointed, suffer corruption. It wouldn't. It didn't. And he would rise again without corruption. But that's what they thought. They didn't understand yet the resurrection. They thought he was in that tomb. And that was it. They loved him. They believed in him. It wasn't the end, they thought. Somehow this will serve to take away the guilt of sin. This will be the great act. He must return. He must do some great thing. He said he would return. So it's with faith, but not clear understanding. They anoint him, and then he's placed in the tomb. And soon afterwards, the chief priests arrange with Pilate for there to be a Roman not a temple guard of Levites, but a Roman watch and a Roman guard and Roman sentries and a Roman seal set on that tomb. And Christ would be there until the first day, until the resurrection. Where was he? Well, his body was there, but his soul was with God the Father. He said so. He had said to the dying thief, Today, this day, thou shalt be with me in paradise. In the paradise of Christ. Where is that? I go to my Father, he had told the disciples. Not a separate place from where the Father is. The paradise of Christ is in heaven where God the Father dwells and that's where Christ was. His spirit, what is that? The spiritual being of Christ who is God, who cannot die, present with his Father. The person of Christ, the spiritual being of Christ, had left the body and was with the Father. 
Now, God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit are one God and they cannot be separated. We do not understand exactly how it was that Christ, when he died on Calvary, suffered our separation from the Father that we deserved for all eternity, punished in hell, separated from God, the source of all blessing and all good things. Christ must suffer our separation. And yet, he cannot be separated from God. But somehow, he was obliged to experience the separation from his Father, though essentially he is inseparable from the Father. Those things are beyond our understanding. But we believe, because Scripture teaches us so, my God, my God, said Christ, why hast thou forsaken me? But now, the appalling, unfathomable sense of separation is over and he is reunited with the Father. Also, his human soul, because it is indivisible from his divine being. He is God and he is man. We cannot begin to understand how the man, Jesus of Nazareth, and the divine being of Christ, the Son of God, can be one. One is so small and the other so infinite. Yet, that is what has been brought about. The extraordinary and wonderful unity of the Spirit of Christ with his human spirit. We don't understand that. But it is so that the soul of Christ, God and man, rose to the Father's side, where he would in due course receive all authority and power. He had it before, but now he has it by having earned it on Calvary's cross. His body in the tomb, his divine being and human spirit with the Father on high. There are not three places. Sheol, the place of the grave, one department for the lost, one department for Christ and the saved, but heaven, slightly different from all that. No, no. There's only the place of the dead for the lost, and the paradise of Christ. When Paul was strangely and marvellously lifted up to heaven, let me read it to you from 2 Corinthians chapter 12. This is important to us in our study. It is not expedient for me doubtless to glory. I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord I knew a man in Christ, he's speaking about himself, of course. I knew a man in Christ above 14 years ago, 
Whether in the body I cannot tell, or whether out of the body I cannot tell. Some people think that means Paul doesn't know whether he was really lifted up into heaven or whether it was only a vision of his being lifted up into heaven. But the better understanding of the language is that he did ascend up into heaven, but when he was there after his return, he could not tell whether he went bodily or whether he went only in spirit. That's the meaning. But there's a great truth to be drawn from this. If it's possible for Paul to have been lifted up into heaven as it was, only in spirit, because he didn't know whether it was one or the other, then it means that in the paradise of Christ, in heaven, same place, our disembodied souls will go at death and we will be able to function almost as though we were in the body. Because Paul, after his return, seems to say, now I come to think of it, I don't know whether I was in the body or not. So if not, he was as recognisable and he could see and he could function somehow even as a disembodied soul just as well as if he'd been in the body. That's what we glean from these words. When you go to heaven, even before the second coming of Christ, when there's the new heavens and the new earth, and a new and glorified and wonderful earth is somehow merged with heaven, and we receive our resurrection bodies, when that happens, it will be wonderful. But even before then, in the paradise of Christ, we see each other, and can somehow function almost as though the body was still there. But I read on. I cannot tell, halfway through verse 2 of 2 Corinthians 12, God knoweth such an one caught up to the third heaven. He defines that in a moment. And I knew such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I cannot tell, God knoweth. Repeating that tells us it's very important to us. How that he was caught up into paradise. Today he said to the dying thief, should thou be with me in paradise? Same place. And heard unspeakable words, which means words so wonderful and so rich and so full of meaning and sense that they could not be expressed in earthly language. Once standing normally among fellow believers on earth, Paul could not express those things. There was no language, no words, exalted enough, profound enough, rich enough, graphic enough to convey the sense of the knowledge we shall have in heaven, 
in paradise. Unspeakable words. That's the meaning. Inexpressible truths and facts and sentiments and statements which indeed it is not lawful for a man to utter. That extensive knowledge awaits us, even if Paul could have expressed it, which he could not have done. It would not have been right. Of such an one will I glory, yet of myself I will not glory. I, I Read that because it just gives us some insight into the place where Christ immediately went on his death, even before his resurrection and the glorification of his body. No three places, two departments of Sheol plus heaven, which is unreachable until Christ's return, that's not, I believe, the right interpretation and understanding of Scripture. Just two, after death, the place where the lost are reserved to judgment and heaven itself. These things, I wish I had time to go a little further. Perhaps next time, did Christ actually descend into hell? The creed seems to say that. Or was the truth that Calvary was his hell? That was how he descended into hell for us. He descended from heaven to Calvary. And there he suffered our hell. In that sense, he descended into hell. But the Holy One, the Holy One, as I hope to show you another time, couldn't possibly descend into the pit of darkness. That's a misunderstanding of Second Peter. And we'll look at that another time. Enough for us to be challenged by the great commitment of Joseph of Arimathea